0: Craig Parkinson, and this is the Two Shot Podcast. Pop the kettle on, and let's dive in. How the devil are you? Um, if my voice is uh, deeper and lower uh, than normal, it's because, let me have a look at the timing of my phone here, it's exactly 25 past the hour of midnight, um, I've just got back from work, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I haven't been able to record regular episodes but it's going to get easier to do that in the coming weeks, which is good news, isn't it? It's good news, and the other bit of good news is we've got a new episode this week, uh, and I was able to do two things. Uh, I came back. I'm. I'm recording this from. That's my squeaky. Hear that squeaky trainers. Uh, I'm in Brighton at the moment, finishing off uh, the last block of filming. So I'm going to be here for another mm, six weeks or so. But I was lucky enough to go and catch the stand-up comedian, the brilliant stand-up comedian Nick Helm uh, on Sunday night. And we were going to record this prior to me seeing the show. Uh, which is called uh, What Have We Become? It's on tour right now. You should definitely go and catch it. It's, uh, it's brilliant. It's a good, good night out. And I was coming back from Manchester on a Sunday and gave myself a lot of time. And, you know, there was a rail strike the day before, which I'm totally... F- for, you know, give people what they need. But it did mess things up the day after, and it basically didn't give myself and Nick enough time prior to him jumping on stage in Brighton. So I said, you know what, let's leave it, and let's try and catch up this week, because I wanted to try and record on the back of me seeing the show as soon as possible because he's got a heavy touring schedule, I'm busy filming, and I need to get back recording podcasts because you know how much I really love it. And, yeah, it's uh, it was one of those. Anyway, we sorted it, and um I spoke to Nick this morning... ...from his hotel room and from me here in Brighton... Uh, ...prior to my uh, seaside walk along the beach... ...which I try and do every morning. Oh, it's incredible. I do love it. And, um, yeah, it's it's a brilliant conversation. I'm so chuffed that he came on. I don't know if you know, if you know Nick you'll know him either as a stand-up. I first came across Nick on... It wasn't... It wasn't Live at the Apollo. It was something else. I don't remember what it was. But he was unapologetic when he came out on stage. And... It was, I don't want to say it was aggressive, but it was certainly, um, (laughs) um, look, he, he wasn't backwards or coming forwards. He started off the routine that I saw, which I'm sure you may have seen, asking a certain member of the audience if they liked jokes. And he kept on asking if, they liked jokes again and again and again and again and again um, but the on stage Nick Helm and what you 're about to hear the off stage Nick Helm, you know they're two very different people, and he also starred. In three series of what I think is can be can we, we can class it as I think a cult sitcom now. It's called Uncle, it's with Nick, um, the brilliant Daisy Haggard, and it's 10 years ago now. Um, I think look, if it's not on BBC iPlayer, it's definitely on Britbox, if you haven't seen it, I h- hardly recommend it, it is passionate, funny, angry, um, it's great, it's really, really good sitcom, but yet Nick's show, uh, on tour at the moment, what have we become, do, do go and see it, it'll be coming to a town near you, or if you've missed it, then you know, catch up jump in the car, go somewhere else. But this episode with Nick, myself and Nick had met um, before, I uh, believe very briefly. We certainly hadn't sat down for an hour remotely. You know, it's always a bit difficult when it's remote. Um, But this wasn't difficult at all. I wanted to do it in person, but I don't think we'd lost anything by doing it. Um, in this remote fashion. He is extremely honest, very, very open, um, and takes the reins with the questions that get thrown out there. And look, what I'm going to say is it does... Go quite deep with regards to mental health struggles and suicidal thoughts uh antidepressants medication it's not it's not bleak it's not bleak chat at all, but there's a certain portion uh, about two thirds in that we feel we need to have a chat about that and discuss it and Nick's more than happy to do that. Uh, I th- hopefully I was I handled it in a sensitive way. There's certain things we didn't talk about that I didn't think we needed to, to discuss. But also we talk about the mechanics of being a stand-up, um, when stand-up is taken away from you as it has been for many stand-up comedians how he builds a show, what he loves about being a stand-up comedian, um, all sorts. It's a a brilliant lesson. It's a brilliant lesson. And I was so happy that he came on. And after, uh, what, have we had like a three-week break? Mm, It's a cracker to come back to. So um, I'm going to have a little... drink of my water and I'm gonna pack uh, up because I've got a few days off brilliant I uh, I'm gonna get some more episodes booked in as soon as I can and you know what it'll be we'll be back doing regular Thursday episodes very very soon but until then please put your headphones on slow down on that treadmill, enjoy the commute, whatever you're doing, and enjoy. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the brilliant Mr Nick Helm. Enjoy. I'll see you at the end. Nick, morning.
1: How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm all right, but I'm not a touring comedian. I'm a jobbing actor, which means I'm not working till half past three this afternoon. But how how is the tour going?
1: It's great. Um, yeah, it's sort of started. Uh, I wasn't sure what it was going to be like when it started. You know, um, in what was, way? Um, well, I wasn't sure what the audiences would be like because this is this is the first time I've sort of like gone out and about since the pandemic. Um, hmm. Uh, I did Edinburgh. Edinburgh was really lovely. I did a one-hour show in Edinburgh, and with this I had to, you know... Um, not I had to. In actual fact, I found the hour, like, more difficult to work out what to take out, because I knew, I knew I was going to go on tour, so I, it had to be, like, a 90-minute show with an interval in the middle. Um, so, so Edinburgh was an hour, and then when I started the tour, it was just like, well, how does the new material fit back in? But um, yeah, it's been lovely. It's been fantastic. People have been really nice, and um, I like meeting audiences afterwards. And yeah, the whole thing's been brilliant, really. Yeah. Well, I was I was
0: lucky enough to see it in Brighton on Sunday night, and it was a really good crowd, and they were really going for it because you don't you don't really pull any punches
1: um it was a weird audience though wasn't it on a sunday it was a sunday night audience in brighton but they were like a friday night audience really they were like yeah. very sort of um i wouldn't say i don't i don't i don't think of it as heckling i think people were just trying to sort of like join in because they weren't trying to disrupt the show they were just sort of trying to participate (laughs) um yeah i've never seen anything like that on a friday night really on a sunday on a sunday (laughs) night on a sunday night it was uh, yeah (laughs) um but it was fun it was a fun one but they're not all like that um some of them are like more like theater shows and then some of them are more like well i guess that was the only one that's been exactly like that right Um, yeah yeah it was fun it was a fun one
0: can you can you tell, as a comedian, what an audience are going to be like within the sort of first 10 minutes, or whether you're going to have to work much harder to get them on side or not? Because the thing is, it's not like you're supporting or, you know, they're taking a punt. They've bought tickets to come and see you, so you would already think that they would be fans of, of your work anyway
1: it tends yeah i mean, a tour show tends to be people who are only there because they want to be there mm. and um and when you're on a like when you're on a mixed bill that's that, that's i find um i find mixed bills really stressful like on a like it, as as a as a jobbing club comedian going on stage um when uh, the audience have already really enjoyed three other comedians and then you've got to go on and kind of like and you're, and you're in you're in the green room going I'm nothing like any of them guys and um and then you've got to go on and match that that's um I find that I find that stressful um not that you know not that I can't do that but like I just find the whole build up to that quite stressful um but when you're on tour I kind of just remind myself that they're there to see me and then when I go out if, if they do have, you know, if anyone if anyone does have, like, a, a problem, it's kind of, like, it's up to them to leave, really, I think. Yeah. Because literally everyone else is there for it. Last night, I came on stage. I was in Birmingham, and I came on stage, and there was a guy with his phone on his knee, and it was all lit up. And, I, and it was the very first thing that happened when I came out on stage, he had his phone, and he put his phone down, but he didn't switch it off. Um... And I was just like, "What's going on here?" And he was bidding on um, a rucksack on eBay, and <laughs>
0: fucking hell!
1: And he had like uh, twelve minutes left on the on the thing, and um, and and at first, you're kind of like, "Oh my, what's what's <laughs> 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 why are you here?" But then um, he became like a running joke throughout the night, and it was just a really really fun one in the end. And I started the show differently from how I normally do because of this guy. And then it just made the whole show a lot looser and it was and it, it was fine, so I think that if ninety nine percent of the audience are on side there 's always going to be some people that are dragged along by their friends or, mm. or their partners and stuff, but as long as ninety nine percent of the audience are on side, I think you can kind of win people over. <laughs>
0: You see, that's the difference as a as a, a comedian. Now, as an actor, if you're doing a piece of theatre and someone's texting and it just pings and lights up, you can't exactly stop the play and go, "Can you get off your fucking phone and pay attention?" It can, it can, that that can be really distracting. And no matter how many times I go to the theatre, people put their phone on silent, or sometimes not, or let it or let it ring, and sometimes answer it. And there's like nothing you can do there even yeah. if you sat there as an audience member or whether yeah. you're on stage.
1: Yeah, you do have quite a lot of... Um, you, you do have quite a lot of freedom as a comedian to do that. But mm. on the, on, the, on the flip side... When you're in a play and you're in theatre, there's like more than, there's more than you on stage. So it's not so much of a personal insult. You know, it's yeah. kind of like they're insulting all of you in a way. When there's one guy that just won't switch his phone out and you're gone, like, I've traveled to Birmingham for this. And, <laughs> and he's just like, and he, and he, and he, he gives so little of a shit about it that he can't even be bothered to switch his phone off. It's not, it was not even switching his phone off, Craig. It was. It was not just sort of like making the screen go dark. It was just like wow. Um, so yeah, it's more of a personal insult, I suppose. But then you have like the ability to kind of deal with it as and when. So I don't know. It's good and bad, isn't there?
0: Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> but Nick, for you, let's go back. So what came first for you? Because was it was it music or was it comedy or was it acting? Because um, at the moment, I know because you've done all you do. You do all three.
1: Yeah, to, to various degrees of ability and success, but yeah, um, I uh, well, when I was when I was young, I was very like creative in general, and I guess I've I guess I never really picked one, and then I still haven't really. And I, that's that's good in some ways because you know i'll do a tour, and then when I finish this tour i've got an album coming out um and depending on when this is out it'll be out already it's coming out mm. on Halloween and then um uh and so i I might concentrate on some music then or I might con- concentrate on actually just writing and trying to get uh, you know my screenplay finished and all of this stuff but um I guess what I started out doing was i started out i wanted to act. And I wanted to sing, and I always wrote songs when I was, you know, a sixth former. And at school, when I started like learning guitar and stuff, um, I used to write songs to help me do that. Um, and then when I started, so then, so then, so then, I went up to Edinburgh when I was twenty, and I wrote my first show when I was twenty, and um, uh, and I really started writing because I was so shit at auditions, and. Um, And I was just like, I'd never got any parts. Um, And uh, I got so nervous and overwhelmed by it that I just started writing stuff for myself to perform. And then, um, and then I'd I'd, I'd like direct theatre and write theatre. And then um, that became like very sort of like difficult to. It's like, theatre's like when you're like doing independent theatre, that's like being in a band where you're kind of like convincing five other people that your idea is worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I got to a point, I'd, well, the story is that I'd, would spent about seven or eight years writing a play. I took it up to Edinburgh due to a printing error, It got a one star review. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then they, the, 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 it was from the Scotsman, and the Scotsman uh, phoned up the theatre and they said, oh, there's been a printing area, you've got a one-star review. But it was actually meant to be a two-star review. And um, <laughs> and I think if it had been a two-star review, people would have just ignored it. But because it was one-star, people came to watch this car crash. And, right. Um, uh, and, it, and, it, and it went all right, but at the end of that I was just like, if you can spend seven years writing something and in uh in three seconds you can (laughs) accidentally um yeah give it a one-star review then um then then I'll see what stand-up comedy is like and it was always one of those things that I wanted to try so when I started doing stand-up comedy uh that sort of like scratched that itch of kind of like uh, writing and directing and performing and all of that and then when I had to do 20 minutes I only had 15 minutes so I added a song into it and then Mm. that That pumped up. And then everyone liked the song more than all the stand-up. And then, you know, and then I became kind of like a stand-up comedian that did music. And then in 2011, Henry Normal came to see me in Edinburgh. And after that, he put me an uncle. And then now I'm an actor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think years ago, from from the outset, it always seemed to me uh, to be that stand-ups, and I'm going back a fair few years, would go to Edinburgh... And their goal was to be seen, like you know, by people like Henry or some Channel Four execs, so then they could get their own sitcom. And I'm not saying for everybody, but it seemed to be quite popular <laughs> at that time.
1: Um, I think that's definitely. I well, it's, it's changed so much in the last ten years, and I'd mm. say the ten years before that. I think stuff like Life at the Apollo changed um, the possibilities of uh, what you could do with a career in stand-up comedy. Um, you'd go from being kind of like a working jobbing comedian to being a household name overnight. And in the early 2000s, you could sell out a tour just by one performance. on um, Or, so we've been led to believe, you could sell out a tour from one performance on um, Live at the Apollo. And um, But there were only like five comedians, you know, in the country. And then when it became kind of like um, a legitimate way of... Uh, becoming a superstar, then uh, people became a lot more interested. You know, there's there's um, there's degrees, there's university degrees that you can do in stand up now, where you pay loads of money to spend three years. I don't know what the course is. I don't know. I don't know what you. I don't know what you'd learn on a stand up comedy degree, really, unless you're learning about the history of stand up, which, which I guess I would find really interesting. But yeah, I I, I think that there's nothing you can't really beat just getting out there and doing it and dying on your ass night after night until you get good you know and did you in the
0: early days when you were out performing stand up did you did you know the, what the goal was as in terms of i was going to be me or i was going to be a version of me or i was going to be a sort of slightly more grotesque character or cuz i don't ever think that any stand ups are a hundred percent themselves i always feel their their aversion
1: it's like a persona like uh yeah it's a persona that you kind of like it's not like i've got to get in character it's sort of like a switch that you flip and then you know um when i'm off stage i'm one thing and then as soon as i go on stage i'm another thing um but i've had to be because my because my act is so kind of um You know not not aggressive but my 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 act is is so extreme in terms of personality wise to Mm me i've always had to be very careful about who i am on stage and who i am off stage so i'm always very sort of like polite with people and mild-mannered with people and and you know to let people know that this is different from what's on stage and you know um and uh What's the
0: question? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose in the early days, did that mm. come fully formed to you that you were going to be this... I, I mean, you said it there. I mean, it's not an aggressive persona, but he's. I remember in the early days when I first saw it, I thought, fucking hell, this guy's... He's certainly not backwards or coming forwards. Mm. Did, did that come to you quite quickly? Or was it, was it, a, bit, was it a bit falling on your arse and failing?
1: I guess, like, through theatre. When I wrote theatre, I used to write about emotions and depression and stuff like that. And um, and so I sort of had an idea of what I was on stage before I started doing stand-up. Mm. Um, but when I first started doing stand-up, I sort of wanted everyone to like me. So I'd go on and I'd be all like, hello, how are you all doing? Oh, isn't everything wonderful, guys? and um, um, And it was sort of like, it was all right. But um, I'd written quite a lot of material and I just basically realised that I didn't know how to perform it. So um, so I, I took a year, I think about 2008, 2009, I stopped writing stand-up and I just was like, I've got loads of stand-up, how would you perform it? And I just worked on how to perform it. Um, and I think kind of like I'd had you know, a couple of specific gigs in my mind Uh, where the audience were kind of apathetic and there was ten acts on. Well, I'll tell you what. When I first started, there'd be kind of like... You'd do like a laughing horse gig in central London. And I lived in St Albans with my parents, so I'd travel into London and it'd be a Sunday night and it'd be rainy and cold and miserable and you'd go to, like, this pub and there'd be three audience members and ten comedians and every comedian wanted to be Stuart Lee and they'd Mm. all go on and do Stuart Lee. And because that's so low energy, um, yeah, the night would kind of like really struggle. And so I would always sort of like take it upon myself to like bring the energy in the room and I'd go out and I'd do it and everyone would be like, Oh, that was really great. And he'd be like, yeah, but it's not what I want to be Stuart Lee too, do you know? and And so it, it was kind of like, uh, so I kind of got a, 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 a name for myself, I guess, by just being kind of like a person that put energy in the room, um, and then and then later on when I kind of like could was doing all right, I could kind of like take a step back and think about who I actually wanted to be on stage, and and then I could kind of like put it put it together that way. My my goal as a comedian on stage is I've never tried to be cool, and I'm not trying. Um, uh, I'm not trying to be likable and, um, and in the past, uh, it's been kind of like a bit more of a caricature, a caricature or a character like, um, uh, yeah, even like, even like six years ago, I think I, I kind of like, it would be, it would be like this heightened huge performer. And then over the last few years, this this is like the third. This is the third tour show, the third show that I've done in a row that's been sort of like um, talking about me on a personal level. Mm. Whereas, whereas before it'd be kind of like like general stand up, you know, um, where where you're talking about general things and themes like dreams and war and. Um, uh, and I did a show about evil can evil, and that was maybe a little bit more personal, but now i 'm just kind of like like laid bare and stuff and um, and and that 's kind of like being guided by my audience as well. I have a really good relationship with my audience and um and I would talk about I would talk about depression in the past, and people would ask me about it and um and and then I would talk to them about it. And then I found that my audiences found it really comforting or useful for me to talk about that on stage. And then when I did live at the Apollo, I talked a bit about depression and people took it out of context and they got, um, not not loads of people, it was probably about three people. But I but it, it, it stuck with me and I was just like, right, so the last three shows I've done, I've tried to sort of like put my, you know, lay my table out and just be sort of like, this is where I stand on mental health and uh, depression. Um, and I'm, I'm writing comedy about it, but I'm not making fun of it. And, you know, one of the most, you know, I, I, my first goal is to make people laugh and to have a nice night out and to enjoy themselves. I don't feel like the best way to do that is to just tell everyone that everything's all right and so i sort of like try and take people through kind of like an emotional journey where you kind of like you bring them down and then you bring them up again okay. uh, it's very important to do that last bit and then um and then i really sort of i i, I found i found that the more honest i was about myself the the the, the more people uh, related to it and, mm. and and so first and foremost i want to be funny and then secondly um i want i want I want people to find some sort of comfort in it and um, and and I want to start conversations on the way home, you know. So if people come and see me and I talk about depression, I talk about antidepressants and I talk about whatever experience I've been through, then it opens up conversations for people on the way home to start, gives them like a helping hand to start conversations on the way back. You know, I mean, we you were in an Uncle and um, Uncle basically does that as a sitcom. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, um, I didn't write it, but one of the reasons I wanted to do it was that um, the, it was about stuff that meant a lot to me. And um, and I get people coming up to me all the time saying that, you know, they watched Uncle and it helped them through a really difficult part, part, part of their life. And it's it, it, that, for me, is the most fulfilling thing about doing what I've... You know, my body of work so far, that is the most fulfilling thing about it, is the fact that it's really helped people. Um and it's funny, you know, and I think that that's if i'm if if I've got one job, then that's it you know is to sort of like um i don't know make people make people laugh, but also kind of like help people a little bit,
0: but you do, and I think that why people connect. With because I don't want to give it away, because I want people to go and I do want to see you on tour, even though that's not what we do on this pod- podcast, but I do want people to go and see it because it's a fucking fantastic show. but what you do do, which I think is lovely and it's delicate is you don't preach it's not preachy yeah. because you because it's because of a certain moment towards the end of of this show where you do talk uh openly and and quite personally about some subjects and you bring it you bring it quite down. And it's, and it's a lovely personal moment that people can emotionally connect with. And it isn't preachy. Mm. I find sometimes, because, you know, you touched on Uncle there and there were certain topics in that show going back a fair few years. Before it was, and I don't want to poo-poo it when I say this, before it was fashionable to be talking so openly and honestly about mental health.
1: Yeah, I think people will look back on Uncle and realize that it was ahead of its time. It was, mm. it, was it, 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 it did, it did, it did lots of things that are very you know, popular now. Um, you know, it's getting on for ten years ago now. Um, yeah, I, 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 but I would also say that with the live performance stuff, that is trial and error. I think part of my last show, my last show is called Phoenix from the Flames, and I felt like. I hadn't quite grasped how I wanted to get the message across. So when the pandemic came and I had to cancel that tour, I was actually sort of relieved because I felt like I felt like it, it I don't think it was a hundred percent preachy, but I do feel like for me on a personal level it it you know, it was just on it was just bordering on the wrong side of, of that where um I don't have all the answers and uh, and it would be disingenuous for me to go on- it would be it would be ridiculous if I went on stage and said, "I've got all the answers, guys follow me <laughs> but but all but all all you can do is like set an example of being kind of like, um I'm just gonna be open about my problems and i'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide away and I' know I'm saying that this should be kind of like everyone's daily life is to walk around like an open wound but for the for the hour and a half I'm on stage you know i'm kind of like demonstrating that you can go on stage and you can do that and people can still kind of like uh, find you funny and likable and all these other things and 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 i don't know it's just kind of like go on stage and if i say it out loud then maybe it'll help them say it out loud but um but that that's that's where i feel like um comfortable you know whereas Whereas in my last show, I felt like it was just erring on the side of um, preachy, like I've solved it. I used to be depressed, and now I'm not, mm. and I've fixed myself. Um, although, <clears throat> although I probably need to rewatch that show because I don't really think that that was the that would never have been that, that wasn't the message. But but I feel like it was it was a step closer to being kind of like, hey, I'm all sorted now, and mm. um, and one of the things that I learned. Or I kind of came to terms with in lockdown was that um, that I think that that my mental health issues and and, and depression and all that stuff, that's not something that I can that I necessarily, am going to fix that I'm necessarily going to solve. But but that was actually quite freeing <clears throat> because then it, it then it came down to if you're going to be with this thing for your whole life, then how are you going to cope with it? And then it became about working out how to cope with with these issues. And then that that was actually rather than being like a negative like oh I'm stuck with this thing. It was more like okay great. Well we're, we're in it together me, yeah. and my, me and my brain. So how are we going to get through it all together? And 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 I found that kind of comforting in a way.
0: And and I suppose freeing as well to know yeah. and it's a, it's a bit like you, what you talk about in the show towards the end is it you know, it is trial and error. Like medication is trial and error. Maybe this 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 path is not for you, but but this road is comforting and could help you in some way.
1: Yeah. Well when yeah.
0: when 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 did you first realise? Because, you know, we all get down and we all suffer from anxiety sort of now more than ever, but you know, depression uh you know, rears its ugly head in various different ways. But when did you realise that it that it was? Depression; it wasn't just some sort of mood or, or small bit part of anxiety.
1: Um, well, again, it's it's like it's a, that is ever evolving thing where um, it's it, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because like I think I was talking to I was talking to a friend maybe maybe a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, but mm. not but not very long ago. And uh, she was talking about anxiety, and um, and I was just like, well, what's that then? And then she sort of described what anxiety was, and I was like, well, I've got that. And and I think, kind of like, for a long time, I lumped everything into this one category, which was depression. Mm. And uh, and then there's bits of OCD mixed in with that, and and um, and that kind of like opened up this whole kind of. Um, Avenue to sort of like explore, where where it was just like oh, hang on a minute. These, all of these, I, I, I'm 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 sort of like dealing with all these conflicting feelings, and um, and it's like a whirlwind in my head sometimes. And uh, and actually, it's quite good to sort of like separate things out and go kind of like, well, that's you, just sort of like with your OCD, just running things round and round and round in your head, and then that's kind of your your anxiety because you're sort of like. You know, you can't leave your flat. And um, and so I don't think I've got to the end of the journey and I don't think that's what I'm sort of like saying. I think, I think what I'm saying in the show is that I'm sort of like on a journey and I'm sort of exploring it and these are the things that personally um, have helped me. Uh, I don't say... Do what I do. I sort Mm-mm. of like just say that kind of like this is what I've been through, and and um, and and if if you can take anything good from that, then 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 take it. But um, but and, and also you're find you're finding your
0: tools to help you along with the journey.
1: Yeah, and and, yeah. and chemically everyone's made up differently. You know, it's so like the mm-hmm. first drug that I was put on was Sertraline, and that really that was that was. That that really fucked me up for, for, you know, about six months where I, you know, I was having uh, suicidal thoughts and I kept talking to the doctor and saying, like, these are making me worse, and he kept saying, like, I'll just give it another two weeks, give it another two weeks. And it was just like, this is much worse, much, much worse than it was when I wasn't taking them. And so I had to sort of, like, really, like argue with the doctor and say that this isn't this isn't what i want this isn't for me and and convince them that i wanted something else which is ridiculous um but but like having that conversation with my friend like a year and a half ago that just came about just through us talking together and then i was just like oh and then i found a new avenue of something to explore and to discover, and. Um, and so, so my, my first thing would be if you if you if you're suffering from anything, talk to people and tell people what it is that you're going through. Um, uh, get on a waiting list for for a therapist from the NHS and and mm-hmm. and, and talk to, talk to them. Talk to your GP. Talk to your friends and your family. My family are not the best people to talk to about about depression. You know mm-hmm. they. And and one of the things that I've learned through therapy is that you know you have to accept people for who they are and what they are and you can't be angry with them for not being what you want them to be yeah and my my mum and dad are brilliant but like they don't know they get they get scared and they get lost when it comes to depression and i try and sort of like um avoid talking to them about like the really big stuff whereas i've got a couple of friends um who have been uh really, really kind of amazing, and helped me find kind of um uh, kind of avenues to sort of like help myself with and then also my girlfriend's been incredibly supportive and incredible and and you know we met during the pandemic and um and I thought I was all right, and then I kind of like had a had an absolute kind of um car crash and and she's been and, and right from the beginning she's kind of like been been completely there for me and supported me and um uh, but it's not like when I say go out and talk to people it's just is not not everyone will be there and will be able to help you.
0: No, absolutely not, I agree.
1: But um but it's it's about kind of like it's about educating yourself and teaching yourself and kind of like working out through trial and error what's what and who's what and, and 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 when i drew that line in my head about what my family are capable of and what they're not capable of um then uh it improved my relationship with my family you know i wasn't just there like going oh I, why why can't you see what's wrong with me why can't you you know i was just like oh we're we going out for a bit of sunday lunch today right okay and i sort of like managed to deal with with things like that
0: um I mean, with things like that, with talking to uh, parents about about sort of deep topics and personal topics like that, I I sometimes think it could possibly be a generational thing.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I I think so. I think there is a lot of anxiety in the world now. Um, uh, I think that there's lots of reasons for that. Um, I think, you know, I I think social media isn't kind of like a coincidence and, and, and it's stuff that our parents didn't have to deal with and only deal with in a very superficial kind of distant level, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. rule, it doesn't rule their lives. Um, And so I think it is a little bit difficult for them to relate sometimes and for them to understand. And, uh, and, and that's not really, that's not really their fault. And, um, And, and also for some people, their parents will be the best people that they can talk to so it's it's we're all we're all different you know we're all different in terms of like our relationships with people in our lives and and who we know and what we've got and uh and we're also different in terms of the ke- chemical uh, makeup of our brains and everything and so so it's kind of like literally you, you can't go out there and say oh i've got mental health issues and this is how to solve them but it is kind of like i've got mental health issues and this is how i'm tackling them mm. um Yeah, and I think the more people talk about it. The other thing is, even if you take nothing away from the show, just going out and talking about it like it's normal is is a big help in general. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just kind of like you know, um, I I, with this show, rather than you know, giving a big dramatic build up and a reveal in the third act that, and then, dear reader. It turned out I suffered from depression. You know, I I come out and I say it right at the st- uh, right at the start of the show. It's almost sort of like a, a, a crazy way to start a show because you'd you come out and you. Say, I start talking about antidepressant uh, medication that I'm on, and it's kind of like, well, this isn't kind of like a real kind of like crowd pleaser, is it? But <laughs> it, it's always gone. It's always gone well, and yeah. And, and then once I've dealt with it, I can just do the rest of the show and sort of and get on with it. And I think um, I think normalising it—if if, if if you're not giving like specific advice, which I which I would, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever want to give out like specific advice. But um, but just by going out and talking about it, you know, you're, you're setting an example for people that that is all right.
0: Nick, you touched on before about possibly going back and watching the last show are you quite sort of forensic in your approach about going back and watching the show and seeing what worked and seeing what you want to fix because i would have thought that well that's quite specific to that show yeah. if it's if it's gone there's kind of nothing you can change or is it is it more about your uh, approach to a joke or how you deal with an audience about what you can learn to take forward into the next shows
1: um, no, I think that each show is its own thing, and, mm. I, I, and once I finish the show, I draw a line under it, I forget about it, and then this this show. I mean, my last show was written before the pandemic, and this show was written after a two year break. Um, I found I found my last show incredibly um, stressful mentally um, because I was talking about mental health issues, and I felt like I said I felt like I was I was erring on the wrong side of preachiness and whether I was or not I don't know but like um um I knew that that's not what I wanted to do but also mm. when we canceled when we canceled the tour because of the pandemic um I was so relieved and I didn't want to do stand up and when the pandi- it was it was weird wasn't it because it was like we're in very competitive industries where there are only so many jobs for a lot of people and um, and with comedy, it's kind of like Edinburgh's every year. You kind of like get in this, it's like a school year, you know, In Edinburgh's your exams. And then throughout the year, you're kind of like getting ready for your exams. And then you pens down at the beginning of August, you do, your, you do your show and then you get reviewed. And then in, in the autumn you, you go on tour. And then in January you start kind of writing a new show again. And, um, and it's if you, took, if you took an Edinburgh off, you'd feel like everyone was overtaking you. And so even if you took a break, it would be incredibly stressful because you'd just be thinking about all the things that you weren't doing and all the people that were overtaking you and doing all this. And I've always tried to, you know, be as... I've always tried to sort of, like, not compete, you know, and just do my thing. And my thing is so different from everyone else anyway that mm-hmm. it's just sort of... the the, the, not like there is no contest but it's just like you can't really compete with this because it's different so so i've always just tried to just do my own thing and and but you get sucked into being uh competitive and it's not a good state of mind for me to be in and um and so when the pandemic hit although it was terrible on a lot of levels you gotta kind of look at the global thing and the personal thing and and on a personal level, the fact that everyone had to stop kind of meant that it was possible it was like the first break I'd had in twenty years, you know, and
0: wow.
1: like like mentally and um and and I kind of needed it. And then after I'd sort of like healed for a little bit, like like, you know, month and uh, I eventually started wanting to do stand-up again but I'd got to a point where I didn't want I didn't want to do it and and then when uh, the restrictions got lifted I my m- first goal wasn't write a tour show my first goal was just scrape something together so you can say it on stage and so the tour show you know superficially ended up being um, like a greatest hits of my favorite routines that I've done since since we've all been allowed out again and then the frame the framework is you know looking back on the last few years but the actual content of the show is stuff that, uh, that i've really enjoyed you know like um uh well i've got like i've got like specific set pieces i've got a bit about hello fresh and i've got a bit about prince andrew and i've got a bit about uh being on an airplane and uh and and comparing it to the pandemic and um, and those were all like chunks that I really enjoyed. And then it's about putting them in a framework where, um, where, where it works, uh, where it all, where it all sort of like tries to flow together. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then it's kind of like bookended with this story about my family, which I wrote specifically for Edinburgh. I think I wrote that during the first week when I was in Edinburgh because I got up to Edinburgh with all these bits and I was just like, I don't have a beginning or an end. So I wrote the beginning and I was like, now I need an end. And then, <laughs> and then I wrote the Oh, maybe I wrote the end and I was just like, how do you set the end up? So then I wrote the beginning, you know. But... um And the, you know, the bit about Hitler's dad, that's, that's not in, that wasn't in the Edinburgh show, but that was like a really fun bit of material that I didn't really have a place for. And everyone was like, well, you've got to put that in the show. And when I did Edinburgh, I just took it out because it was the only bit that wasn't really about anything. And then when I was on tour, you put it back in again. And it's like, great. It's a crowd pleaser. Everyone, everyone likes that bit. And, um, and so really it's kind of like you look at a show as like a piece of, Uh, theatre and you kind of like go right it's it's got this story that goes through it and it's got a beginning and a middle and an end and it's all very but but in terms of kind of like putting this show together it was really it was like lego it was just like this is a bit that i like and this is a bit that i like and this is a bit that i like and and how do you construct it all whereas the last show was was i think um very much kind of like this is my journey through a thing and it was it was it was it started off as as kind of like, how do I tell this story?
0: Being specific about Edinburgh, you touched on there how you didn't really have that 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 certain start or that certain end, and you're just going to try and write it when you get up there. That's quite a scary prospect to go up there for a month. Is that a, do you normally work like that?
1: Um, yeah, I, I I would say. Well, in the early days when I did something like uh, my my first like big well, I'll tell you what, the year before that in 2009, I was meant to do a show with two other comedians who dropped out right at the last minute and um and when I tried to cancel the show because it was under my name, um they wouldn't let me and they said your name you'll never you'll never work for PBH ever again and if you know PBH it's kind of like um it's, it's, it's the free fringe and uh, it um, it helps a lot of comedians start out. Mm. But um, but at the time, I was I, I felt like I was going to be blacklisted and and that was the end of my career. Um, and so I, I I'd written poems and songs in the past. So basically, I just took a bunch of poems that worked and a bunch of songs that worked, and then I came up with a couple of routines. And I did it in a very short amount of time, maybe a month. And I went up to Edinburgh, and, and the show sort of evolved for like the first. It's a bit like a house sort of like expanding, and and it, it found its kind of like place after a few days, and then um, and then that was just a really good show, and it, and and I put it together very very quickly. And then when I did um, 2010, uh, I was previewing that, but I was like doing stuff with props, and um, I had sort of like. Uh, a musician friend who was on stage with me played guitar, and uh, and it was just uh, there were all these elements to it that, and and plus it's kind of like, I need a song, so I'll write a song and I'll spend a day or two days writing a song, but at the end of doing that, you've written a four minute song, and you haven't written fifty six minutes of stand up, yeah. So it's just like, well, what, what? okay, the song's great, but it's just like, what do I do with the rest of the time? Mm. And so previews were always just a nightmare. You'd kind of try and try and do a couple of previews, and then it'd be like, well, that doesn't work, and that doesn't work, and whatever. Um, and I think some people pre... Everyone's different. Everyone works differently. Some people preview it until they're happy with the show, and then they go, right, that's the show. And then they take it up to Edinburgh. But I'll preview it until I kind of like go I think I've got the basic gist of it and maybe the last uh, in 2010 my last preview was rubbish but um, but I knew what didn't work and I knew what did work and then I took it up to Edinburgh and I did it and then also on the first day there was like four people in the room and I used to do a thing where I'd sing nice to meet you, nice to greet you, nice to say hello and I'd get an audience member out and then I'd say nice to meet you Nice to greet you, nice to meet you, nice to greet you. And nice to meet you, nice to greet you, nice to say hello. And then I say hello, and they say hello, and then they say their name. And then I go, great. And, and that was it. And I was going to work with them on you know throughout the hour. There'd be an audience member who'd be, like, helping me out. And that's what I went up to Edinburgh with. But on the first day, there was four people in the audience. And it was just like, well, it's a bit weird just taking one person out. So I got, like, everyone out of the audience on stage, and we all met each other, and I put them back. And then the next day, there was ten people in the audience, and I got them all out. And then at the end of the week, there was like, it was like, it was filled. You know, there was like, people were coming up to me in the streets going, apparently you get everyone on stage. (laughs) And I was just like, yeah. And it became its own sort of like marketing thing it was like well i when when people say this word of mouth you know you're you're not really in the loop on that because people are talking about you not to you mm. but there was like this word of mouth about that show because i'd got all these people up on stage and every day i'd get like 80 people up on stage and one at a time or like chunks at a time and there'd always be one person left in the audience that that would be the audience member and that's the thing that literally came together throughout the first week of being up in, in the festival and it was the best not maybe not the best thing about the show but it was one of the things that made that show stand out mm. and um and you know uh, tv people came to see that that's what got me my job on uh Russell Howard's good news which um made me a headliner sort of i went from kind of like being like a middle spot to being like a headliner and um and and when when you get up there and you realise that so much of it is just all to chance anyway, you know it's about kind of like get you, you. What I try and do is I try and get all the bits for a car together, and then I take it up to Edinburgh and then I assemble the car when I'm in the venue. And right. and it's and I think that I think that's how I kind of try and do it. And if I need sort of like a new bit, then I'll write it. But I'm not like writing the show. I'm kind of like going. There's a little gap there that. That that isn't clear enough for like this bit to work later on. So now I'm going to fill that gap with, with that bit. Uh, or, um, I've got a message that I want to say, and I don't know how to fit it into the show. So it's about working out the logistics of how to do it all. And it does change when you're in the room. Um, uh, yeah. And so, so I think when that happens, you kind of, you kind of, you, you, you're serious about writing the show, but in terms of constructing the show and putting a show together, you have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. And also kind of like you might have the best material ever, but you do it in front of the most ungrateful audience <laughs> that you've ever seen. And like I've had, I've had gigs where they've been going so badly that like even within the last year where I've gone, kind of gone, I've got a really good bit coming up now and I'm not going to do it because I like it. And if I do it in front of you, you don't deserve it. <laughs> you're gonna make me hate it. You're gonna make me yeah. doubt it. Like next time I do it, I'm gonna be thinking, is it any good? So I'll be kind of like, I'll do all my B, C material, but I'm not giving you the A stuff because you're gonna, you, you don't know what to do with it. So, <laughs> so, so there's kind of like a bit of that, you know. It's I, I first and foremost, I think it's really fun. I really enjoy putting a show together and take it, You know, I don't think I've ever said that in any interview. I've always kind of, like, been kind of a little bit, like, ponderous about it, but I th- what I find putting a show together and making it work, that's the really fun bit, and, and I enjoy it, you know? Well, it really sounds
0: to me like your love of stand-up is back and thriving. Can You know, if we went back at the early days of the pandemic where you didn't want to get up and do it again... Yeah, it sounds like you are firing on all cylinders there. That the passion and the love is is where it needs to be.
1: Yeah, and but I think that um, I think that it's um, a lot of that is the audience. You know, it's it's kind of I love I love going out there and I love doing a show and I love. I love doing the merch. You know, I I sign merch at the end, and I always say, you know, you don't have to buy anything. You can just say hello if that's what you want, and and that's like a really important part to me. And the, the whole the whole evening is kind of like um really special. So to go out and meet people again and kind of perform in front of audience, I've enjoyed doing club gigs since I've come back. You know, when you're on a mixed bill where, you know, you're one of five comedians and. That's the sort of stuff that before the pandemic, uh, um, yeah, it would terrify me. I'd get really stressed about it. And I think one of the important things that I've done since the pandemic was I've kind of come to terms with the fact that I am a stand-up comedian. I've gone, right, this is my job. This is what I do. You probably, you know, you know after the pandemic, I needed to make some money. And it was just like, what's the quickest way to make some money? Well, I can get a gig tonight and I could go out and do it. The only problem is I don't want to do it. So how do I make myself want to do it? And so after the pandemic, I spent like a, a, a couple of months, you know, just going out there and doing gigs and retraining and reteaching myself how to do stand-up and how to enjoy it and... And I went from kind of like dreading club gigs to kind of like going back out there and just really, just really making the most of them and really enjoying them. And um and in the past I've really managed to split rooms where some people love me and some people hate me, and I'll be having a great gig and a bad gig at the same time. To kind of like lowering that percentage so that more people were enjoying it. And um uh yeah, I'm being I'm I am being i am i am kind of like being more instinctive about it and uh, and I've taught myself how to just sort of like if I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life I better fucking start enjoying it and so yeah. so I've taught myself how to enjoy it and, and and I love it now and it's brilliant and and it's sort of like such a weird distant memory to think it's something that I didn't want to do you know mm. but it was it was a couple of years ago so.
0: why did you why did you shy away from calling yourself a stand up comedian or admitting to yourself that you were a stand-up comedian was it through embarrassment or you didn't feel legit or
1: <clears throat> um no i think it was because um i found it hard it was really difficult it was not not doing it i'm all right when i'm on stage as soon as i get on stage even if it's a bad gig as soon as i'm on stage you know what you're dealing with but it's waiting all day to get on stage and not knowing and then and and so i would have I would have a gig coming up, and it would be like it would be like an app running on the. You know, you'd be low level stressed about it, and then the closer it would get. In when I first started doing stand up comedy, if I had a gig, I would be nervous for two weeks before the gig, and then it got down to about an hour, and 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 now I'm doing it. Or my goal for doing it. I didn't do club. I didn't do club sets for about maybe six years. I would do Edinburgh every year, or I would do, or I'd be doing Tally, and I couldn't do Edinburgh. Um, and um, and my show, my, my you know, when when I did a twenty, my twenty consisted of. There's five one liners then I do a song then I do a bit of audience participation then I do a poem then I do a story then I do another song then I do some more one liners then I do and it was just like there were so many elements for me to remember I would just freak out about oh my god I'm going to forget something or whatever whatever goes wrong well, and then you start planning for plan B rather than plan A and going well if I get that bit wrong then maybe if I do that and then you go like why am I learning plan B when I should just be concentrating on plan A and <laughs> and it's just kind of like uh, there were so many elements to it that it was, it, it, you know, it was overwhelming to me. And then when I came back to it after the pandemic, it was just like, right, okay, throw all that out. I I need to remember three things, yeah? I need to remember Pepsi Max Cherry, Sainsbury's, and HelloFresh, and I can do 20 minutes with those three things, and uh, and that will earn me whatever money for that night, you know? And i can just go up i don't have to think about it at any point throughout the day don't have to build up to it all through the week i probably think about it five minutes before i go on stage and then i walk on stage and i do it and it wasn't about generating material it was about making the material i had work and it was about being comfortable with just getting up and doing it and and that's what this show is sort of like made from it's made from routines that I just found really enjoyable, really straightforward, really easy to remember, and I'd just go out and I'd do it. And it wasn't like song lyrics where it's just I, 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 I freak out about song lyrics. Mm. Um, uh, I write songs, but I find remembering the songs incredibly difficult, <laughs> and uh, I've got a really terrible memory with that with that stuff. But with stand-up, it's not like I've written a script and I've learned it. It's conversational, and you say it, Sort of fairly similar every single day until you get like the 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 pattern sort of sorted in your head and then and then you remember it like that way and um yeah, I mean uh I wouldn't say that I was embarrassed about being a stand comedian, but I would say that I found it really really, really difficult, and when I started doing telly, I was just like um, uh, not that I find that easy but you don't have that immediate pressure of getting up in front of a room full of people and trying to make them laugh. And it mm. was it was kind of like I find I found like acting kind of it was something that I've always wanted to do. But also um it's a different it's a different sort of stress. It's a different pressure um that isn't necessarily about uh I don't know. Like TV acting is different from theatre acting as well, but um, mm. but it's kind of. like I found that also. Uncle was just just the most supportive environment that you could have done it under, and um, and so I sort of like found my way over the series to, to to work out what it was how how to do it. I suppose.
0: Yeah. No, I'm only asking about. Um feeling legitimate, cause I, and not that this is about me, and it never is, but in my 20s, <laughs> I, I used to be I'm embarrassed to, to, to call myself an actor. And I know many other people that, that are like that because they just don't, they don't feel legitimate. And over the years, you just go, oh, actually, I think I've kind of earned my stripes now. And Not that I want to go around with a megaphone saying it, but certainly if someone asks me at a party, I'm not going to uh, pretend that I have another... Career,
1: I think, yeah, I think that uh, like it's imposter syndrome, isn't it? And you're kind of mm. well, I'm I'm an actor, but I'm going to get found out one day that I'm not an actor, and everyone's going to realise that I'm not an actor, and and it's going to be you know, with comedy. It's slightly different because um when you're at a wedding and you bump into someone, and they say, "What do you do for a living?" and you say, "I'm a comedian." Uh, they, you know, if you say you're an actor, they don't say, go on, then do us a bit of Hamlet joke. But when you're a comedian, it's like, I tell us a joke. So there is kind of like a thing where you just sort of like, you you frame it differently. You say, oh, I'm a writer, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, or, or, I mean, I, yeah. So I think there is kind of like... <laughs> no, but what
0: they, do, what they do say when you say I'm an actor is, what would I have seen you in?
1: Yeah, right. And then that's and always sort of like... I, well, you get you get people that recognise you, who come up to you and say, "Are you famous?" And you go, "Well, no, <laughs> <laughs> obviously not." <laughs> you know, um, uh, so so there's sort of like there's the there's the embarrassment in that, but there's also um, I think that one of the hardest things that you can do is admit to yourself what your dreams are, and uh, and it's like one of those things where you kind of like. You know, you say to yourself, "Oh, well, I want to be—I want to be an actor. I don't just want to be an actor; I want to be a successful actor." You know, or I want to be famous, or I want to be uh, the best comedian in the country. I want to be whatever, and whatever your dream is, and and the first thing you do is you kind of like go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Well, that's not a thing. I'm, I, I, how do I just sort of like go about my daily? And dreams are really easy to put up on a shelf and just sort of like admire until they're they're not relevant anymore until that moment has passed. And I think one of the hard things to do is to sort of, like, say, no, this is what I want to do. I've got one shot at this. And it's this window of my life, and I'm going to really go for it, and I'm going to try and make something of this. And either, either it works or it doesn't. But, like, I think that the important thing is that you tried. And, like, I, I... I, People always used to come up to me saying, oh, fucking hell, you're brave being a, uh, being a comedian, aren't you? That's, like, the hardest job in the world. And I'd be like, yeah, I think that it is... I think it is hard, but or it is scary. But I always found what was scarier was the thought of getting to the end of my life on my deathbed and thinking I never did it, I never tried. And so, so I do find stand up scary, but I also find the the prospect of not doing stand up scarier. So, uh, so I went for the less scary. I'm, I'm a coward. I went for the less scary option, which was getting up and doing it. You know. <laughs>
0: Nick Helm, that seems like such a perfect place to end our conversation, and I've really loved it. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: Thank you for asking me. That's very good. You're
0: great. welcome, my friend. And good luck with the tour, mate. It's brilliant.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Um, it was lovely to see you again.
0: And another episode is done. What did I tell you? What a lovely, a lovely grounded, but very sensitive man, I think Nick Helm is. And I'm thrilled that he came, and I loved that chat. As I said, you know what I'm like. I don't do plugs. No one asked me. When people ask me to do the plug in, I just go, "No, I just go to somebody else's podcast or someone." You know, those people that do that. What have we become? Is Nick Helms' uh, stand-up tour show that you can go and catch right now? Google it. If it's near you, go. It is a good. Night out, and my god, you get your money's worth. Um, it's not just straight one hour, you know. He comes on, you've got an interval, you've got more, it's fantastic. And hopefully, after you've heard this uh podcast, now you'll go and get some tickets. I would, I did, and I really enjoyed it. I can heartily recommend it so. What else have we got to say? Not a lot, because obviously you can hear in my voice I'm quite tired. I'm going to go to bed very soon. Um, but thank you for being so patient and hanging in there. The podcast will be coming back, as I said, on a a, a more regular basis very very soon. So uh, keep the faith, Lord. This has been going five years. We're not dropping out now, and. We've got some good guests coming up that you are not going to want to miss. We are going to bow out season 10 as we started, as we always start and as we always end on a massive high with brilliant guests, with conversations that you're not hearing anywhere else. And if you feel like you can support us, then go to patreon.com slash the two shot pod. And you know what? If you want something else, we've got hoodies, we've got t-shirts, we've got mugs, we've got stickers, but do you know what? It's getting a bit colder. Maybe those lovely, toasty, soft hoodies have got your name written all over it. And if that's the way you want to support us, I'm not not going to hold you back. You do that. I heartily recommend The Grey. It's so soft and it looks very cool. As ever, you can support us on all the social medias. Shout us out, tag us in. We're Twitter, we're Facebook, we're Instagram at 2 shot Pod, And it's 2ShotPod at gmail.com if you want to drop us a line. Right. You do whatever you need to do, and I'm going to go to bed. And until I see you again, which will be very soon, I promise. I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the very welcome return of the Two Shot Podcast. Take it easy. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson. Recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers.